It's very disturbing in all sorts of ways to see yourself this early in the morning so large. Um, frankly, colleagues, I'm surprised. Um, it's 8.10 or so in the morning. When I was giving this keynote time slot, I thought probably one or two people in the audience, but no, how sad are you all? <laughs> I mean, seriously. And last night, a fantastic uh, awards dinner, and I promised myself, because I know this, I thought, when the dancing starts, I must leave. Because there will be photos that are embarrassing that will be put on Twitter before my keynote today. So I did leave when the dancing started. I went back to my room thinking it must be 10, 30, 11 o'clock. It was 9.15. What's wrong with you people? You started dancing at 9.15. But it was a great evening, and it's been a great conference, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see so many people here this morning. And my topic, in a way, is, is going to be relatively hard-hitting, so I guess there's a warning uh, in advance. It's about equity and excellence. And the theme of the conference is about vision and voice. And my keynote today is going to be about the voices we don't hear the children who are invisible. And my argument is, a little like Michael, we need a different vision for education that combines equity and excellence. So, I will start. This is a title, I'm gonna try and move. Can you still hear me? And you can see, I'm not gonna dance, you're gonna be reassured about that. This is the title of a, a new book. And at first, Corwin didn't like the title. They didn't like the idea of the system recall. They didn't think that anyone would understand what that meant. The argument in the book, and the argument I'm going to make this morning, is that when a product is faulty, it is recalled from the shelves. When an education system is faulty, it should also be recalled. The argument in the book, and the one I'm going to make this morning, is that right now, the heavy lifting of equity is being done by those sitting in front of me and those in schools. It's done by leaders, it's done by teachers. It's not done by policymakers. There's a significant issue around equity. Interestingly, it's become what I call policy confetti. Equity has become the buzzword, as if equity has just been discovered. And you see it in different policy documents and different glossy brochures. But what does it actually mean in practice? How do we get both equity and excellence? So the main mes message today is that, and this is where it becomes quite hard hitting, that much of the contemporary reform that we see, many of the policies that we see that drive excellence in the system, actually exacerbate equity. So in other words, the policies are working against equitable outcomes for all students. And my plea, and I guess I've come so far in my career that I can be honest, I can say things that 
might make me unpopular, but I believe right now that it's time for a system recall. It's time for a rethink about what's most important in education. And if we're serious about equity, we need different sorts of policies and different sort of systemic priorities. What's my definition of equity? Well, for me, it's about success for every child in every setting. And I said that in 2008 when I worked at Welsh Government. And I still firmly and passionately believe that. The emphasis on every child, not some children, and the emphasis on every setting. And the reason I say every setting, it doesn't just mean high poverty schools. We know that issues of well-being and mental health are prevalent throughout the schooling system. And yet poverty is a big driver of inequity. We also know that. The relationship between underachievement and levels of disadvantage remain very, very strong. It's difficult to break that link. I was with a head teacher of a school quite recently, and he has now opened a food bank in his school, not just for the pupils, but also for the parents. So we're seeing high levels of poverty, increasing gaps between those who have and those who have not. But when we talk about equality and equity, and again, these terms are used interchangeably, they actually are related, but they mean something rather different. And you probably have seen this picture many times. But the whole issue of inequity is demonstrated in the third, in the third picture there, that what we're really trying to do is to take away those barriers. Some of them are deeply systemic that get in the way of certain young people getting their educational rights. So inequality and inequity are related, but we're talking here about equity issues, not equality issues. So here's the argument that essentially, and quite perversely, we might see our education policies actually contributing to inequity. Now that seems perverse. I'll explain why I think that is the case. In the pursuit of excellence, and normally when we talk about excellence, we tend to think of academic excellence. We tend to think of test scores. We tend to think of academic achievement. And the argument here is that by focusing so much on excellence, we've actually forgotten about equity. In other words, equity becomes an add-on, an afterthought. Whereas my view is, and the view in the book, is that equity should be central to the educational debate, not marginal to it. And by focusing so much on excellence, and narrow measures of excellence, we willfully neglect a huge swathe of young people who potentially could contribute to society. So here we have an early Christmas present. Um, you all know what I mean by pizza, right? And you're all thrilled by the fact that the pizza results will be out 
in December. Now, here's a sort of pre predictable chain of events. Let me just rehearse this with you. Your PISA results will come out. Our PISA results will come out. And then we go into what's called PISA shock for a while. Everybody gets distracted by those results. The media will have a field day. You'll be told you're the worst performing country in the world, and you should do better. And then there'll be an aftershock, which comes along as various strategies to improve your PISA results. That's a predictable chain of events. This headline from 2016, don't panic about PISA, and then we've got Australia is slipping down the world education league table. Is that true? Well, if PISA is your only measure, then possibly. But here's the thing. This is the thing I can't understand. Is policymakers all over the world are just like gamblers. And they're gambling and betting on something that they're never likely to win. And then they set themselves goals like, I want to be in the top 10 of PISA, the top five of PISA, knowing that's never going to be achievable. And yet, like gamblers, every so often they go back to the table and they try again. And they get the same result. And as more and more countries join PISA, the chances of you being in the top five get less and less and less. Now, here's the insidious thing. PISA... I have no problem with PISA as a test, okay? But I do have a problem with PISA as a policy driver, and that's what it's become. If you think that 10 or 15 years ago, the OECD in Paris would be dictating to Australia what it should be doing in terms of policy reform, you'd be quite shocked by that. But that's exactly what's happening. One of the things that PISA is quite helpful at doing, though, is identifying the gaps. The gaps between those who have and have not and their educational performance. And this is the finding from the PISA results last time. Three years of schooling is a lot of schooling. So and you are not unusual in having this, this particular gap. And I've worked with ministers who say, oh, well, what we need to focus on is closing the gap. It is unlikely you'll ever be able to close the gap, but you can narrow it. It can be narrowed. But that's the stark reality, that there's still this difference between those who come from wealthier backgrounds and those who do not. That gap is still there. I thought I'd put that up to reassure you a little bit, and then I realized that in doing that, I'm actually telling you I'm from Wales, which is a really dangerous thing to do right now. Um, we're really sorry about the game, not that much. Um, <laughs> but my prediction, is, my prediction is that actually uh, the Wallabies will come back and probably be in the, the final. But that's what we're gonna get in Wales, in England, in Scotland, in Ireland, all over the world. The media saying, oh, well, you can do better. 
And then it gets into a discourse around, well, teachers are failing our students. And suddenly the blame is shifted onto schools and teachers and sometimes, you know, parents. But the problem doesn't lie there. Now, Pak T from Singapore, Professor Pak T, said recently, and I think he's right about this actually, that PISA is a measure. It's not a report card of a country. There are many other measures that will give you a different indication of how the system is performing. And yet, we still go back to this, and we still believe these headlines. My question to you is, and my question to the OECD is, where's the child in Pisa? Where's the child in Pisa? These measures that are undertaken, these comparisons that are made, where's the child in Pisa? The other problem with PISA, as I've said, is that it is now a policy driver. So it isn't just a case where we get weighed and measured and compared. Decisions are made about policies based on the results of this particular test. Most of the countries, OECD countries, have changed their policies as a direct result of PISA. Just think about that for a minute. As a result of this test, policies have been changed. And Parsi Salberg would say, it's resulted in GERM, the global education reform movement, which has brought accountability, testing, inspection, a whole raft of measures where schools are squeezed even harder to perform even better. Many countries outside the OECD have also changed their policies. Now think of the logic of that. A test every few years can change policy and change policy in a certain direction that may not be the best direction at all. Yet other indicators are ignored. So that's my problem with PISA. Not just the fact that it weighs and measures and changes people's minds about what's being achieved, but because it changes policy, and not always for the better. <laughs>